that we can happily provide for you. So just raise your hand, and uh, one of the brothers will get those, or sisters will get a Bible to you. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 7. Uh, we're in a series through Luke's gospel that we have called Getting to Know Jesus. Uh, I think, brother, just is that your hand, sister? Yep, yeah, just there. Uh, we're in a series of Luke's gospel called Getting to Know Jesus, where we are attempting to do just that, to get to know Jesus better and to love Jesus more than anything we know and love in all the world. And uh, it's our custom here to take a portion of the Bible and to preach through it kind of verse by verse and to give the meaning of the text and to apply it to our lives. And that's what we want to do with all of Luke chapter 7 uh, this morning. So y'all pray for the preacher. Pray for the hearing of God's Word. Everybody have a Bible that wishes one? Amen. Sociologists and scholars of religion have been writing a lot over the last several years telling us to beware of the nuns. Not the Roman Catholic nuns with the habit and the rosary and all that good stuff. But they tell us that there is the rise of a group of persons in the United States who, when they're asked their religious affiliation or asked about their religious practice uh, on surveys and things of that sort, would check the box, none. That they have no religious preference, that they aren't active religiously, um, and they have come to be called the nuns. It's a growing group. It's about 23% of the U.S. adult population. That means about one in every four people you see would be described as a nun, someone of no religious faith or practice. That's up from 16% just back in 2007. It's a particularly growing group among the millennials, right? People who were born uh, around 1991 or so, which doesn't seem like that long ago to me. <laughs> the older I get, the more recent those years are. But 36% uh, of persons uh, in, in that category are, are, are sort of, or, or nuns, uh, come from that demographic group and, and younger. It's a group, as I said, that's been growing. It's a group that, interestingly, has, many of them have some kind of religious background, usually some kind of nominal Christian background. Maybe mom and dad were Christians or grandparents were Christian, and so they have some familiarity with the teachings of the Bible or the teachings of some other religion. But they're leaving that background to become nuns at a rate four times the number of people with no religious background who are becoming Christians. So for every one person you see who grew up in a home where there was no religious practice and no religious faith, who themselves have come now to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to practice religious faith, for every one of those persons you see, there are four persons who are going the opposite direction. So this is a growing group, 36.1 million Americans, I think. The interesting thing is because of their contact with Christianity and Christian teaching, uh, most folks who describe themselves as nuns are not atheists. Only 3% of Americans would uh, describe themselves to be atheists. No, the bulk of this 36 million people, they believe that there's some higher being, some supreme power. They just don't believe in a particular God or subscribe to a particular religious faith. And when you ask them about Jesus, it's interesting to see the surveys. They, they think Jesus is a good guy. 
Many of them don't have any beef with Jesus at all. They believe Jesus to be uh, a good moral teacher. They believe Jesus to uh, have been on the side of the outcast and the broken and the poor. And many of them love the stories about Jesus and the, and the teachings of Jesus. So they feel themselves to be friendly toward Jesus. Here's the thing, beloved. You can be friendly toward Jesus in your attitude and your outlook and not have Jesus be your friend. In Luke chapter 7, we're going to see a lot of nuns, a lot of people who are uh, 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 ostensibly on the surface of no religious faith, who are not Jews but Gentiles, who are trapped in sin or, or struggling with doubt. And we're going to see how they respond to Jesus. And as we read through this chapter, we're going to go through basically about five scenes. The first scene in verses 1 to 10, we're going to go to a sickbed. A man is near death, and, and, and a Roman soldier has called Jesus to come and to heal his servant. In the second scene, we're going to go to a little town called Nain. And Jesus is walking into the city, and coming out of the city is a widow mourning the loss of her only son. Third scene, Jesus is going to get a question around verse 18. That'll come from John the Baptist, who Matthew 11, verse 2 tells us is in prison at the time that he sends this question, and John is struggling with doubt. When he answers the questions that come from John around verse 24, he's going to turn now in that same spot that he's in, and he's going to address the crowds, because there's some things he wants the crowd to know. And then we're going to come down to a last thing, around verse 36 or so. It's going to be in a Pharisee's, a religious man's home. And while Jesus is in that home, a woman described as a sinner is going to come to him. And what we see through these five different scenes are, are sort of five windows onto who Jesus is. And not only do we see these five windows onto who Jesus is, but we're also going to see various kinds of responses. And the main thing to see here is to see Jesus for who he really is and to respond to him in the way that pleases him, in faith. So look with me in Matthew chapter 5. I want to read the entirety of the chapter. If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter, that's the large number. When I say verse, that's the small number. Matthew chapter, uh, Luke chapter 7. I don't know where Matthew 5 came from. <laughs> I don't know where Matthew 5 came from, but I'm glad I got a listening congregation. That's all right. That's all right. Amen. I'm going to take that as a win. Y'all be listening to the word. Luke chapter 7, <laughs> beginning in verse 1, because I didn't bring nothing on Matthew. Luke 7, <laughs> beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick. And at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. 
For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. 
one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you take notes this morning, I, wanna, I want us to look at Jesus and learn five things about him. Number one, Jesus is a Lord amazed by faith. Is a Lord amazed by faith. Number two, Jesus is a prophet moved by grief. Jesus is a prophet moved by grief. Number three, Jesus is the Messiah who answers our doubts. Jesus is the Messiah who answers our doubts. Number four, Jesus is a king who exalts the lowly. Jesus is a king who lifts up or exalts the lowly. And number five, Jesus is a savior who forgives the biggest sinners. Jesus is a savior who forgives even the biggest sinners. Let's consider that first point. We see it in verses 1 to 10 that Jesus is a Lord amazed by faith. Again, the context here is there is a Roman centurion in verse 2. A centurion is a soldier in the Roman army who was in charge of about a hundred soldiers under him. Now, the Roman army was known for its brutality. When you talk about the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, uh, that was a peace that was enforced by military might. And keep in mind, Rome now is occupying Israel. They're occupying Jerusalem. But this Roman centurion is not quite like the typical Roman soldier. Notice something about this man. Notice what he loves. He loves, verse 2, 
his servant, his slave. His servant was sick and was near death, but he was highly valued by him. Notice number two, he loves not only his servant, but he loves his subjects. He loves Israel. He calls for these elders and send these elders to Jesus to come heal his servants. Notice, notice how the elders describe him in verses 4 and 5. They say he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. Uh, he's not your typical conquering soldier. He actually loves Israel. Notice number three, what he, what he loves. He loves submission. He loves his servant. He loves his subjects. But he also loves submission. When Jesus finally arrives at the house in verses 7 and 8, notice, notice what he says. He, he comes out to the Lord in verse 6 and says, Do not trouble yourself, for I'm, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Actually, he sends friends to say that. Verse 7, he says, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And this is why he says this in verse 8. For I, am too, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He's a man with a, with a striking comprehension of authority and submission. He's a man under authority. He's a man with people under him, under his authority. And so he understands something about submission, and, and he loves it. He respects it. You know the one thing he doesn't love? He doesn't love himself. Not so highly that he thinks that he himself can go to Jesus. That he can ask anything of Jesus. That he can demand anything of Jesus. He doesn't think that because he's a Roman soldier with some power and some ability to oppress his subjects if he wants to. He doesn't think that he can extend that power and that ability over Jesus. Notice again what he says in verses 6 and 7. He sends his friends and he says, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. He was a humble man. And here's what's striking. He sees more about Jesus than Jesus' own disciples and the crowds. Do you notice how his friends on behalf of the soldier addressed Jesus? In verse 6, Lord. He calls Jesus Lord. Now, I know in our day we're so used to using that term that maybe it's lost a lot of meaning for us. And I know that in this scene, in Jesus' day, people have not come into a fuller understanding of what that means. That's what makes it remarkable for this centurion to, to call him Lord. And he understands something about what it means when he calls Jesus Lord, when you look at the rest of verse 6, 7, and 8. He understands that to call Jesus Lord is, in fact, to acknowledge Jesus' authority. That's why he goes into that whole thing about, I'm a man under authority and have people under me under authority. He understands the second thing. He understands that in calling Jesus Lord, that Jesus exercises his lordship by his word. Did you see what he said? Just say the word. You don't even have to come to my house. You ain't even got to see my servant. You ain't got to touch him. You ain't got to bring no ointment. You don't need no special prayer meeting. You ain't got to go through no extra steps. You are such a Lord that if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And so we see Jesus around verse 9 look at the crowd and say, I ain't never seen nothing like this. 
in all of Israel, among all my chosen covenant people, among all the people who claim to recognize that God is Lord, that Yahweh is Lord, that they are submitted to him in his covenant, among all the religious people I know, I ain't never seen faith like this. See, Jesus is the Lord who's amazed by faith when he finds it. Later on in Luke chapter 18, around verse 8, Jesus talking to his people will ask this question. It says, basically, when the Son of Man comes back again, will he even find faith in the earth? Faith is a wonderfully miraculous thing. It's a gift, really. It comes from God. And here God has opened the heart of this Gentile man, a nun, outside of covenant with Israel, and given this man such extraordinary faith that he believes not only that Christ is Lord, but he believes in the power of Christ's word, and he humbly submits himself before that power, and he says, if you would say the word, my servant would be healed. And Jesus says, my people don't even think that way. It's a challenge, isn't it? To believe God and take him at his word for whatever we need in our lives, whatever we need in our families' lives. To believe that the word of the Lord is effectual, that it accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. That God's word does not return to him empty or void or powerless, but does all that he chooses it to do. That's what this man believes. Jesus is amazed at it. And you know what's striking about Jesus in this passage? It's right there in verse 6, a simple little sentence, simple action, but it tells us an amazing thing about Jesus. The elders come to Jesus. They say, listen, this man is worthy of you to do this for him. Would you come do this favor? Look, he built us our synagogue, so if we can keep him happy, then, you know, cool, copacetic, right? Verse 6 says this, and Jesus went with them. In all of his authority, in all of his power, he's not too busy to visit a sick slave, to go to the home of a nun. And verse 10 says, and heal. Now, I know that many nuns are suspicious of authority. They're suspicious of religious authority, it's suspicious of any claim that there's a God who has authority over all things. But I want you to see this Jesus. Because married to his authority is his compassion, is his mercy. He's not a God who crushes his subjects. Elsewhere in Matthew chapter 12, we're told that a bruised reed, in other words, a bent piece of grass, he will not crush. And a smoking flack, a, a candle that's about to go out, he won't snuff it out. In other words, if you come to him weak and broken, he's not going to crush you. He uses his authority to heal. He heals this sick man, and that's just a commercial of what's coming in his kingdom. His kingdom will bring the restoration of all things that are healthy, all things that are vibrant, all things that are well. And he comes in all of his power, and he uses it for a slave to make him well. My friend, if you've never met Jesus, let me introduce him to you. He's the Lord of all power and the one who compassionately heals the hurting. 
He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your faith. This soldier understood it. Do we? First thing we want to see is that Jesus is the Lord amazed by faith. But we also want to see that Jesus is a prophet moved by grief. That's what we see when we come down to verse 11 to 17. Uh, soon after he heals this servant, he goes to a town called Nan. Small town. It's the only time it's mentioned in Scripture. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So you see him coming to this small town with a great crowd of people following him. And notice in verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Every phrase in that sentence is important. They're already at the gate in the funeral procession. If this is a Jewish town, I think it is, a dead body would have been considered unclean. And so they would have tried to get the body out of the town actually on the day that the man died. The grief he encounters at the gate is fresh and at its height. Notice now what we're told that this son is the only son of his mother and she's already buried his father. So what would have been perhaps glimmers of his dad's smile, reminders of his father's voice, uh, some indication of her husband's living on through her son. All that she knew in that family, she's now taken to a grave. It's a moving scene. And as a widow whose only son has died in that society, she doesn't have a way of now providing for herself. I mean, she's alone and without means. And perhaps that's why it seems the entire town has come out because the entire town is affected by this grief. And Jesus meets the funeral procession. And notice what we're told about Jesus in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Her grief moved him. It stirred something in his heart. He didn't walk by indifferent to her sorrow. He didn't turn his head the other way. He, didn't, he wasn't so taken up with the crowd that was following him, he couldn't see the crowd that was approaching. He wasn't so smitten with other people's adulation of him that, that he didn't have time to enter into the grief that he could see coming right his way. And so he walks up and he says to the woman, do not weep, <laughs> which if you're not Jesus, is crazy to say. If you're just an ordinary human being, you see somebody mourning the loss of their loved one, sometimes we feel like we, we mean it to console them. We say, don't cry or do not weep. Don't say that. You can't say that unless you have power to change her weeping, unless you have power to solve her grief. That Jesus is not an ordinary man. He comes up to the casket. He comes up to the woman, and he says, do not weep. Now, notice what happens in the text. He goes over to the casket, the buyer, the funeral procession. He stops the procession. He touches the casket. And you can imagine people looking at him like, what in the world? How rude. <laughs> and he speaks to a corpse, and the corpse sits up alive. A man who had been wrapped in the silence of death sits up in his casket and begins to speak. That's power. 
That's power. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd have been one of the pallbearers and that dude had stood up, I... <laughs> it got real rocky. Somebody else going to have to get diesel because I'm about to move. I'm about to move. <laughs> we done wrapped this rascal for the grave. We crying and we, we carry him out to the graveside and, and his, his mama crying, walking behind the thing and, and this rascal just sat up and started talking. That's power. And so you understand the text. When the text says, fear seized them all. Fear seized them all. And they were, they were amazed. And look at what they cry out, verses 16 and 17. They say, a great prophet has arisen among us. And they say, surely God has visited his people. They almost see Jesus. They almost recognize him. He is most certainly a great prophet. And God has certainly visited that people. But they didn't recognize that Jesus was God. That he was more than a prophet. That he's God in the flesh, the Son of God, the eternal God, the Son. And he had come and visited his people. And he had performed this miracle. Another commercial for that time to come. When Christ will speak to all those in the grave and the grave will empty itself. And people will be raised from the grave to one of two states. They will be raised in righteousness because they have believed in Christ and accepted him for who he is in the gospel. And they will enter into eternal life forever to live with this Christ. Or they will be raised in their sin and the condemnation of God's judgment hanging over them. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It's not enough to say Jesus is friendly and not know him. You must know him as the friend of sinners in order to be with him. So you get this commercial of the resurrection to come, this foretaste of the kingdom to come, and people miss it. Listen, it is no honor to Jesus to ascribe to him some great title that is actually less than who he really is. My Muslim friends do it all the time. They say, like these people in Nain, we honor Jesus as a great prophet who did miracles. And, and they mean to be giving him credit and worth. And, and yet, in not acknowledging and refusing to acknowledge that he is the Son of God, they actually pay him a great disservice and a great discredit. And there are many who say Jesus is a great moral teacher. And that's true. That's true, beloved. And yet, that's not all that he is. And in missing the rest that he is, you actually miss him. For he has not come to be comfortably confined to our boxes. He has come to shatter this world with his glory. To make himself known in the fullness of his person. Fully God. Fully man. A prophet, yes but God with us, Emmanuel, the one who has entered space and time and changed space and time forever. So much so that he has power to end our grief. And he will. One day, when he comes again and his kingdom is established, the Bible tells us there will be no more crying. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sorrow. The old things will have been passed away and the fullness of the new things will come. 
And that life, which is really life that never ends, will be the life that all those who believe will have. This is Jesus, the prophet who's moved by our grief, and not only moved by it, but solves it. This brings us to our next scene. Jesus is the Messiah who assures the doubting. He answers our doubts. That's what we see in verses 18 to 23. The disciples of John have been apparently a part of that great country or company that was with Jesus traveling all around um, the country there. You see there in verse 18, they come back to John and they reported all these things to him. They go back to John and say, listen, Jesus just raised a dead man. Jesus just healed a man who was near death on his sickbed. He's the Lord of life, of the living, and the Lord of the dead. And they tell this to John in verse 19. John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now again, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, Matthew gives us an added detail to this story. John's in prison for preaching the kingdom. Now, What's happening with John in verse 19? Think about who John the Baptist is. He's a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He was one who was sent and anointed as a prophet. He preached the kingdom in order to prepare Israel to receive their Messiah. That's his, that's his main mission. That's what makes him unique among the prophets. He was preparing the way for the Lord. He preached the kingdom and he preached Jesus. He's the first one to identify Jesus as the Messiah to come. And he's the one who baptizes Jesus. John has a strong spiritual resume. John, John if, you, if anybody in the Gospels had an early faith in Jesus, it would have been John. And yet John here in verse 19 is doubting got questions. Doubt and faith can exist in the same heart. People of great faith may find themselves in seasons of doubt with questions. Beloved, sometimes we treat doubt as though it's some really nasty evidence that someone is not truly with Christ or truly believing. That's not so. That's not so. And there are many people who would have to pray like that sinner, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. John is in just such a moment. He he believes. He believes that Christ is the Messiah, and he's taught that, and he's led many people to, to follow Christ, and yet now he's having a crisis of his own in that prison cell. We can find ourselves in situations that make us question some of the most basic things we've ever been committed to. So he sends his disciples, two of them, and says, you ask him this question, are you the one or do we look for another? Notice how Jesus answers in verses 21 and 22. In that hour, the text says, in other words, when he was asked that question, what did he begin to do? To heal the blind, to cure the sick, to remove plagues and diseases. He began to do all these extraordinary miracles, right? And then what does he say in verse 22? Verse 22, 
He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And he goes on in verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What's he doing? He gives this demonstration of his power. And you remember back in Luke chapter 4, in his first sermon, he quoted from Isaiah 61, which talked about these very signs of the messianic kingdom coming. He gives John those same signs that are prophesied in Luke 61 and those same signs he's been performing since he began his public ministry. He does it for John's witnesses. He, he does it not as a parlor trick, but to give them evidence to undergird their faith. And then he says in verse 22, you go tell John this. Tell John what you have seen. He's answering John's doubts with evidence. And then he gives John this encouragement. Blessed are those, basically, who persevere in faith who are not offended by me. What a tender Savior. What a tender Lord. When you have doubts, you can safely bring them to Jesus. You have questions, you can safely raise them from the Scripture. And if you have a good Christian friend who knows Jesus well, they're going to be able, like Jesus, to work with you to find answers to your question. I really don't like that strain of Christian teaching that says things like, you never doubt God. Don't you question God. And there's a kind of question of God which is stiff-necked rebellion and sin. We'll see that in a moment. And, and to that kind of questioning, I think we need to answer with rebuke as Jesus does. But there's a kind of questioning that's genuine and sincere. And you don't meet that questioning with, with a heavy hand. You don't meet that questioning with a hard word. You meet that questioning with evidence that puts solid, solid ground beneath the feet to stand in faith. That's what Jesus does here. He's the kind of Messiah that doesn't just make wild claims like a David Koresh or a Jim Jones. He's the kind of Messiah that doesn't just sort of talks about himself as being the Messiah and the one who is to come. There are lots of false messiahs now and in the history of the world. He's the kind of Messiah that will prove it to you, who will raise the dead and preach gospel to the poor, who will give sight to the blind, and the kind of Messiah that will assure you and encourage you to persevere in the faith. One of the interesting things I learned about the nuns in my reading this week is, as I said before, about half of them grew up in at least nominally Christian homes, had Christian parents and some Christian influence, and so they're familiar on some general level, superficial level at least, with, with Jesus and the gospel narratives. Yet they have left that upbringing to declare themselves people of no religious faith. This text, verse 23, says that's a serious mistake. That word blessed could be translated happy or joy. Blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Blessed are those who are not turned off by me. Blessed are those who are not turned away from me. Blessed are those who don't stumble because I claim to be the Messiah. Blessed are those, in other words, who persevere in the faith. The, the way to happiness is not to give in to your doubt. The way to happiness is to find answers and rest your faith in this Christ and to continue in this faith 
in Christ. That's the exhortation I would give you this morning. If you come and you've got questions and you've got doubts and you haven't worked them out yet, don't stop. Get answers. Follow the truth where it leads you. And then when the truth points you to Christ, as it surely will, if you're being in any way fair about the Bible, then continue in belief. However fledgling, however weak, continue in the faith because hope in Christ does not disappoint. Happy is the one who continues in the faith. Happy not only for this life, and maybe not perfectly in this life, but happy forever and perfectly happy in the life to come. See, doubt makes us short-sighted. Faith gives us the long view. And faith reminds us that there are answers for our doubts and there's a happiness that awaits when we trust and continue with Christ. Jesus is the kind of Messiah who answers our doubt. Number four, Jesus is a king who exalts the lowly, who lifts the lowly. Notice there in verse 24, John's messengers had gone, so Jesus begins to speak to the crowds about John. It's as if, you know, the crowds has, have witnessed this exchange between John's disciples and Jesus. And, and it's as if Jesus is aware of our tendency to be evaluating and judging the quality of other people's faith, right? No doubt in a crowd that size, there's some people who are like, oh, he's supposed to be a prophet. John's supposed to be a prophet. He don't even believe. He don't even believe. I can't believe he sent somebody down here to ask that question. Y'all know that. Y'all know how we are. <laughs> and I say we because we just like the people in the Bible, right? I don't know how we are. So Jesus turns to the crowd and begins to have a little session with the crowds. And he wants to make sure that they understand who John the Baptist really is and that they honor John the Baptist in a way that he's deserving. So he says in verse 24 there, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The answer, of course, is no. Because when you went out to see John the Baptist preaching, he said things like this, you brood of vipers. You snakes, what are y'all doing out here? Who warned you to flee the wrath of God to come? Repent. That was his message. John was in your face, and that's why he was in prison. He was in a king's face about a king's sin. You didn't go out to see a reed shaken? Oh, he asked in verse 25, what, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those dressed in soft clothing, who are dressed in splendid clothing, are, um, live in luxury or in the king's court. Jesus said, John wasn't no prosperity preacher. He didn't have on no custom six-button suit and rocking the crocodiles. You know, he, he wasn't living in some palace. He didn't preach for profit. But you go out there. You went out there and see a man dressed in rough animal skin, eating locusts in the wilderness. This was John. He says, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, that's what you went to see. A man who says, thus saith the Lord. And that's what you heard. That's what you got from John. And I tell you, more than a prophet, verse 27, this is the one to whom it's written, quoting now Malachi 3, verse 1, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. You went out to see that one prophet that we had been waiting on in order to know for sure that that one Messiah that we had been waiting on has come. That's who John is. 
Verse 28, you can't get a better commendation than this, can you? Look at this, those words. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I, I believe the people heard John's theme song about that time. da 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 the greatest man alive. Yeah. What Jesus says next is wonderful. It's wonderful, beloved. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Oh my goodness. John's the greatest man alive. But the one who has the lowest place in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now, the people hear this. You see that parenthetical statement? And they get it when all the people and the tax collectors, too, those are the little people. Uh, the tax collectors are the despised one in society. And, and the people, the crowd here, that's, that's your average Joe. When they hear this, notice what they do. They declared God just. They justified God because they had been baptized by John. They had been receiving God's word through John. And now they hear the good news that in the kingdom of heaven, they're going to be greater than the greatest prophet of earth. And they rejoice. See, Christ is the kind of king who in his kingdom lifts the little God. Exalts the humble. This is why he preaches good news to the poor. This is why he spends his time not in palaces and in king's homes, but in the homes of ordinary people. Because in his eyes, there are no ordinary people. All of his subjects, all of the people in his kingdom are exalted, are great. And notice the contrast now in, in that parenthetical statement in verse 29. The regular people, they rejoice, but notice verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers, these are the religious elites, the, the ones who are running the show. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. You never want God to say in his word. You never want anybody to say of you, you rejected the purpose of God for you. What a startling sentence. What a terrible thing. That God had a purpose for these people. A purpose to bring them into his kingdom and to bring them into his love. A, a purpose to make him his, his very own. To, as Zephaniah says, to sing over them in love. And he sent messengers proclaiming this and saying, be ready, the kingdom of God is coming. My chosen one is coming. Be baptized in repentance so that you might be ready to fulfill all righteousness and be ready when he comes. And these folks, the elites, the, the, the sort of rich and powerful, the scribes and Pharisees, they stood back and stiffened up and said, yeah, maybe you little people need that, but we're righteous already. We observe the law. We're good with God. They rejected all the good that God had for them. And that happens today. That happens today. In gatherings just like this, all around the country right now, and maybe even in this room, there are people who are saying, I don't need the gospel, I don't need Jesus, I'm good. God and I have an understanding. I'm a decent person. I try to live right, and I, I think Jesus is a good guy. Don't get me wrong. I ain't mad with Jesus. Religion just ain't important in my life. Jesus ain't all that important in my life. I don't need him. And they may never say 
with those specific words, those things. But day after day, thought after thought, feeling after feeling, action after action, they reject the purpose of God for their lives. And that purpose is to love them and to make them new and to rescue them from his coming judgment and to give them a life that will never end celebrating with him in his love and his glory. His purpose is to do them good and not harm. Why would you reject that? Why would you reject the purpose of God for your life? Is the thing you reject it for better than God? Better than the life God has promised you? Beloved, do not make that mistake. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come to Christ, to believe in Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, to confess your need of Him, and to welcome His plan for your life. That plan is better than any plan you and I could ever imagine collectively for your life. And our best dreaming doesn't it depend upon God's power? You could do it in your own strength. It wouldn't be a dream. If it depends on God's power anyway, and he knows better than we know, and he has better plans than we have, why don't we just accept his plan? Why don't we just trust his purpose for our lives? Don't reject it. Accept it. Accept that God has come to rescue us from our sin. And that he requires us to confess that sin and to repent of it and to trust in him and accept that that's going to be the best plan and purpose for our lives. God would not waste a life that he purchases with the blood of his son. You can trust his purposes for you, even if you don't understand them, even if it costs you. You can trust his purposes for you. The regular Joes do. Often it's the regular Joes with the best sense. You have to be pretty educated to commit some forms of stupidity. The lawyers and the scribes, the educated, the elite, they reject the purposes of God. And that's stupid, beloved. It's not only wrong, it's just dumb. Don't make that mistake. And notice why they do it. He goes on to continue in that conversation with them. Uh, and he says, listen, this generation, verse 20, 28 there, or excuse me, verse um, 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what, what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not weep. And he says that's really about him and John the Baptist. Verse 33, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. In other words, he was the holy man living the really austere or the really strict holy life, right? But you said he has a demon. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, and you say he has a demon. Verse 34. So Jesus comes the opposite way. He doesn't come with a sharp word of rebuke. He comes with tenderness and love for all. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, no matter how the word of God came to them, they refused to receive it. You mean some people who say, man, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't jail with this Christianity thing because, you know, there was this fire and brimstone preacher. He just kept talking about hell and judgment. They're tired of all that talk about hell and judgment. And the next preacher comes along, or you hear that, and you're trying to share with him. You say, okay, I ain't going to talk about hell and judgment. You know, you put that on the back burner. I'm going to emphasize love. And they won't hear that either. There's some people who are committed to their ignorance, who harden their hearts and resist every approach. Jesus says to end that section, verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. The right way, the right choice will prove itself in the end. It'll prove itself through its children. Those who trusted Christ will in the end be seen to have been the wise ones, the right ones, the ones who received the, the best result because of that wise choice. And those who thought themselves wise in their own eyes, actually Romans chapter 1, make themselves to become fools in rejecting the purpose of God. And the end of that rejection is God's judgment. Sometimes people like to make a big show of, of their doubt, really, of their uncertainty. Some people are principally committed to being uncertain. And they tell you that that's humble. They tell you it's proud to be certain. They tell you it's, it's, it's proud and narrow um, to be confident that you have found the truth, right? And so they commit themselves to, to remaining in this kind of neutrality as they understand it, to, to willfully dodging certainty and, and clinging to their doubt. I love what the journalist G.K. Chesterton once said. He says, the purpose of having an open mind, like having an open mouth, is to close it on something solid. Yeah, an open mind is only good if it leads you to close that mind like a trap on something solid. An open mind, always closing on the air, grasping at nothing, it's not useful, and it's not humility. It may be the kind of pride that never accepts any kind of evidence. That's what the Pharisees were about. It didn't matter how you came to them, what evidence you presented, they chose to remain neutral on Jesus. And to remain neutral on Jesus is to be against yourself. No, if you, if you fancy yourself a person with an open mind, Follow the facts. Follow the truth. Gather the evidence. And close your mind on the evidence. And I'm certain you will close your mind on Christ. Not in a way as closing yourself off to Christ, but embracing him as he offers himself in the gospel. Jesus is the kind of king who exalts the lowly. Finally, Jesus is a savior who forgives the biggest sinners. That's what we see in our last scene from verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house and he goes and he sits at the table. Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. She's a nun. She's known to be a nun. She's a sinner, right? When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now get your mind into the sea. Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. A Pharisee is a strict religious Jew who obeys the law of God and feels proud about it, really. And Pharisees are, are really quick to draw distinctions between themselves and people who are not religious, sinners, tax collectors, and they have nothing to do with them. And this Pharisee throws a dinner party and invites Jesus, and Jesus is coming to the house, and he's sitting at the table as the customer of the day with his feet kind of tucked behind him. And in walks into this Pharisee's house a woman known throughout the city to be a sinner. Now think about this woman for a moment. What must she have had to do to get enough confidence to walk into this man's house uninvited? You see, the Pharisee would have said that made his house unclean because she was unclean. But she didn't stop at that. And this woman goes in having heard that Jesus is in the house and, and she goes to Jesus and she stands behind Jesus and she is standing in a pool of tears, weeping. And she bends behind Jesus, and I don't know if she bends down with the purpose of washing his feet, but, or, or if she notices when she bends that his feet hasn't been washed. That would have been a custom in the day. Someone come to your home, a, a, a basic show of courtesy would have been to offer him water for his feet, to clean his feet, to bring him into your home. He hasn't been shown even that basic form of courtesy from this Pharisee. Maybe she notices that and, and she weeps and, and maybe she's felt the sting of that herself having gone to homes and been treated like a sinner. And she kneels behind Jesus and she weeps and she weeps and she weeps enough that the drops begin to turn the, the, the cake of dirt on his feet into a kind of mud. And she weeps more until there's enough that she can actually, with the tresses of her hair, wash his feet. And she not only does the work of a slave in washing his feet, she does the work of a saint in kissing his feet. She bows and she kisses repeatedly the Savior's feet. And she takes that expensive bottle of oil and she begins to anoint his feet, to wash his feet. And in that dramatic moment, we're not yet told why she's done this, but we get a window into Simon the Pharisee's heart because he's sitting there at his table thinking, how is it that this sinner woman is coming to my house? And what kind of prophet is this that he doesn't even recognize that she's a sinner? If he, if he were really a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. <laughs> and Jesus reads minds. He says, Simon... I have something to say to you. Now, here's a tip. If you ever hear Jesus say, I got something to say to you, <laughs> gird up your loins, man. <laughs> he starts to pull your coattail. You, you, you know, he said, I got something to say to you. Simon, unaware that he's, he's already peeped Simon's mind, said, go ahead, teach you what you got to say. Oh, Lord. Look with me the end of this chapter. Jesus tells a parable beginning in verse 41, a certain 
man, moneylender, had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The only worse thing than saying, go ahead and tell me what you got to say, Jesus, is actually getting the answer to the parable right. Because now you're on the hook. You understand the teaching. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly, verse 44. Peep this scene now. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon. There's, there's, all, kinds of, there's all kinds of speech in that body language. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? He really hadn't. He had seen a sort of woman. He'd seen his prejudices. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, the Pharisee, her sins, which, yes, are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus doesn't answer them. Jesus, still talking with the woman, says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's an affecting scene. This is when we realize what had motivated the woman to come. She knew she was a sinner too. She knew she had a reputation. She knew more things than anybody had ever known about her. She had forgotten more of her sin than most people could remember. She had probably forgotten sins that she had done and who she had done them with. And she felt it. She knew it in her own soul. She could, she could feel the brokenness. She could see the darkness. And she was no doubt grief-stricken about her sin. And she has enough sense to know that she has amounted a debt before God, which Jesus says in the parable, she cannot repay. That's what our sin is, is a debt before God. And one day God will call us to pay that debt. And we won't be able to pay it with the righteousness that would remove it. And this woman recognizes that Jesus is that righteousness. He is the one who can remove and cancel the debt of sin. He is the one who can provide for her a new heart and a, and a new name and a new life and a, and a new outlook on the world. And so she comes and she kneels behind Jesus, broken in her sin, repentant and contrite, weeping so much that she washes the Savior's feet. And knowing how much he can forgive her, she loves him. The more she thinks about her sin, the more she loves this Jesus. The more she's aware of what she's done, the more she delights in the Savior. The more she's aware of the darkness in her life, the more beautiful he appears to her. He, she knows she's a sinner. She knows she can't repay it, but she knows that Jesus can. She knows that he can take it away. He knows that she, can, she knows that he can make her new. She knows that she can rise up from that spot, no longer a sinner, but clean and righteous before God. She knows that she can rise up from that spot, a new creature, a new person, because she knows this Jesus, that this is what he does. He's the kind of Savior who forgives 
the biggest of sinners. Oh, the best friend any nun could have is this Jesus. The best friend that any of us as sinners could have is this Jesus. Now notice the parable tells us about a man who owes a small debt and a man who owes a large debt. Neither one of them can repay. And there's some of us who think, well, I'm not that big a sinner. I've been raised in church all my life. I, yeah, I disobeyed my parents every once and again. That's sin too. You're going to stand before God and give an account for that too. And the least of our sins will condemn us to the deepest of hell. Whether our debts are small in our own minds or whether they're great in our own minds, we need those debts canceled by the blood of Christ. And his blood will cancel it. It will wipe the stain clean if we come to him. And weeping over our sin, confess it. And trusting in him, ask for forgiveness. And believing that he paid the penalty of our sin and canceled the debt on the cross. And he rose three days later for our righteousness and for our life before and with God. You see what he says in verse 50? He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Trusting Jesus delivers us, saves us from the judgment to come. And everyone so saved may go forward in life with peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with others. You ever thought about the fact that the absence of peace in your life might just be the echo of the absence of Christ in your life? Here is a Savior who forgives the biggest of sinners and grants the greatest of peace. A Puritan once put it, there's, one, there's more grace in the pinky of Christ there is sin in us. He has enough grace and enough love to save us all. And the more we recognize we're saved from, the more we love him. So my friend, count your sins. Name them one by one. Take them to Christ who has canceled them all in his cross. Believe in Christ. He will save you. He will give you peace. He will make you new. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray right now for enough sense to think of ourselves as the sinner woman in this chapter. Or enough sense to be like the tax collectors and the regular people. For sense like the centurion. To recognize that you are Lord and by your word you rule over life and death. And to recognize that you have come to fulfill the purposes of God in our lives. To redeem us from the pit, to redeem us from judgment, to redeem us from sin, to redeem us from your anger with us because of our sin, and to give us peace, to reconcile us to God 
you have come to be a friend to us. Oh, Lord, give us wisdom to accept your friendship, to accept your sacrifice, to accept your rule in our lives, and to follow you in faith. There's perhaps one who came this morning checking that box labeled none. Would you help them to check that box labeled some? That they have some faith, saving faith in you. However weak, however, however doubting like John the Baptist, that their faith would be real and give them evidence to continue to believe. Would you allow them, O oh Lord, to consider the evidence of your Messiahship, the, the healings, the resurrections, the, uh, the recovery of sight, the preaching of the gospel? Would you let them consider that evidence and believe? Give them the gift of faith. Oh Lord Jesus, be amazed in the granting of faith, saving faith, even now. And those who have believed, whether it was yesterday or last week or years ago, Help us continue. Help us to not be offended by your name, but to love your name, to love you much. Help us to be familiar with our sin, not as a way of causing us uh, doubt and remorse and as a way of beating ourselves down, but let us recount your sin as a way of, Lord, increasing our love for you, seeing how much you've done for us and saved us from. Oh, God. Lord Jesus, you're fairest of them all. Your name is loveliest. Cause every heart to treasure you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.